leadership is not a one size fits all. You need to find your own leadership style and make it genuine because people will see through when you're trying to put some sort of thing you read in a book into practice. It's got to come naturally. And sometimes that means, you know, going against some of the wisdom that you might hear out there. But whatever works for you, that's the way you've got to run it. Welcome to the Frontline to Boardroom podcast, where we share the wisdom, knowledge and experience of leaders who've served in the military and then taken those hard-won leadership lessons into the corporate world. Hi, I'm your host, Martin Brooker. Looking forward to sharing with you the stories of their lived experiences, warts and all, from leading men and women in harm's way, all the way to the corporate boardroom and beyond. Let's get started. My guest today is Tim Wormsley, a veteran of 13 years service in the Australian Army. Tim joined the Army a little late in life. His operational service included Iraq and Afghanistan, leading a troop of air defence and surveillance specialists, providing early warning and drone capability. He retired from the Army as a major in 2015 and moved into defence industry, focusing on strategy and business development for an aerospace engineering firm. Frustrated with the issues of the stop-start nature of the industry, employee underutilisation and the difficulty in engaging large defence businesses, Tim went all in, including selling his house to start his own company, Benchon. In short, Benchon is a tech platform that automatically matches government and enterprise demand for talent, products and services to businesses that have the right capability and capacity to support them. Benchon now supports over 3,000 defence companies and some of the biggest names in defence, local government and more. Tim shares some very personal experiences from his service, the trials and tribulations of an entrepreneur and, of course, his leadership insights from lived experience. It's a warts and all conversation and I love Tim's courage to deal with challenging situations, both in the army and in business. I do need to warn you up front that we do talk about suicide in this episode for which I know some can be distressing. So if you need resources or support in Australia, go to beyondblue.org or you can call 24-hour free counselling in Australia, the number for Lifeline being 131114. And of course, as always, please look after yourself. Let's get right in. Well, Tim Wormsley, welcome to the Frontline to Boardroom podcast. Great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me, man. Good to be here. So the question I always ask first up is, how do you end up joining the service, in your case, the Australian Army? It was actually my wife's fault, or my girlfriend at the time then. I was a bit of a rat bag back in those days, and I was, you know, the black sheep of the family. I worked in hospitality and nightclubs and, you know, but my life wasn't really on track. Mm-hmm. And Katie decided that she was going to join the military. And so she went through all of the, the processes and she had all the brochures, and I remember looking at them. And I started to sort of go, oh, that looks pretty cool, pretty fun. So being a supportive boyfriend, I went, well, I'm going to join with you. You know, we'll, we'll go in together. And it turns out I got in and, and she didn't. So <laughs> I just like to play with her and say that she failed the psych test. Right. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, for whatever reason, I got in and she didn't. And then yeah, it sort of, you know, changed my life from that point, sorted me out. Mm. And you're still together. And we are, yeah. So we, we dated we dated for the first year in at RMC by long distance mm. and then we got married in the Christmas break. 
at RMC and then she moved down for the last six months and she followed me around ever since. Yeah. Well, that's a great story. And it's not the common story. It's often, um, and you, joined, <laughs> so you probably joined a little bit later in life then. Were you in your 20s then? Yeah, I was in my 20s. Yeah. 23, I think, at the time. Oh, no, it would have been earlier than that. 2003, I joined. Yeah. So, yeah, well, a little bit later in life, but it needed to happen. I mean, there was all the other stuff going on. You know, you had... September 11, you had, you know, what was going on in Timor. And I mean, I was very well aware of all that. And I felt like I had some sort of duty to do it. But I'd be lying if I didn't say that without Katie saying she was going to go in and me seeing what she was doing and the process she was going through, I never would have done it. Yeah. And it sounds like it shaped your career, shaped your life. It really did. You know how they, you know, they say in the army that they break you down and then build you back up. Mm. That was a hundred percent what happened to me. Like I was, mm. I was the absolute opposite of what you would expect a person to be as an army officer. Mm. And I only got in. I think I, I remember having the guy who was interviewing me when I was going in on the panel, and he pulled me aside afterwards, and he goes, "You don't strike me as someone who sees things through." you know, you better bloody do this. You better see it through. And I remember at the time going, yeah, of course I'll see it through. It's fine. But I knew that's what I'd done to that point. Like I just was, I was out for fun. I, you know, I didn't really commit to anything and I was about to commit to something really, really serious. And it did that. So when I was at RMC in in basic training, it broke me down to like the bare minimum. I was broken Mm. and I almost tried to get out of it, but I ended up stuck through it. Once you graduate that first class, all of a sudden you get that sense of pride going, well, I just completed basic training, you know, and I can do these things. And now I've got this little bit more freedom. I'm just going to see what the next phase is like. And Mm. for the first sort of, you know, probably couple of years in the army, that was, that was what kept me going through those hard building periods, which sort of built me up to the person that Mm. I wanted to be. And, you know, I went from like the black sheep of the family to all of a sudden I was the golden boy because I just like my literally just transformed my my life and my values and who I was and mm. I think sort of made me start living up to my potential a bit more. Yeah. That's a great story. So interesting because it's not just those time at the Royal Military College or whatever it is your entry point into the services. It's also then what do you do next and there's still more training to do and you graduate from RMC and you head off to... I went to artillery. Yeah. I did everything in artillery in my career except actual guns. Right. I went straight to 16 Air Defence Regiment and worked on an RBS-70 troop, which is the ground-based missile defence. Mm. And then from there, I went to 131 Surveillance and Target Acquisition Battery in Brisbane mm-hmm. and did target acquisition radars, intelligence surveillance reconnaissance radars, and then they obviously introduced the first drones into the army. Mm-hmm. So I was there during that really exciting period of, you know, brand new high-tech kit, mm-hmm. working out how to use it, how do we implement it? Like how do we bring in this like cutting-edge tech into an army that was so set in its ways and so set in its operating procedures? And, mm-hmm. yeah, that was I think that shaped me a lot from that point, like even now outside of military was that that sort of innovative mindset and people like Phil Swinsberg, who was my CO, 20 SDA, having someone like that who is just there to break down the boundaries and to say, look, this is where we need to be. This is the vision for the future for the army. Like this is us 
technically competent. Mm. You know, working under someone like that, it sort of shaped me a lot in terms of, of who I became later in life. Yeah. And those tactical UAVs or unmanned aerial vehicles were a game changer that we actually needed in theatre in places like Afghanistan and Iraq. Yeah, yeah. So we took them into Iraq in 2006. Mm-hmm. That was the Skylark, which was is an Israeli mm-hmm. drone, and then the, the Scan Eagle from in situ. Mm. So it was, it was an absolute game changer, the ability to, to track the enemy. Mm. But interestingly enough, what we found was it became what we termed command porn. Mm-hmm. And we would have like screens up in the command centers mm. and all of the commanders just suddenly became fixated on watching their own troops. Yes. Like, we're talking COs critiquing the layout of their platoons mm. and going spread out more. You know, you need to move over 100 metres to the right. And it's like, what are you doing? Like, let them do their job. So our use of the technology was incorrect at the start. And we had to learn how to use something like this, like going, you're not here to look at your own troops. You're here to look forward, mm. find the enemy, find the threat, and then give that information to your soldiers on the ground who can't see that far ahead. Yeah. Yeah, that was a big learning point for a lot of people. And so that was a lot of our job, which was training our own commanders to use it properly. And in some ways, you know, the use of technology that we've seen in COVID the last couple of years, we've misused some of that too, haven't we, to sort of try and manage our workforce or manage outputs from our organisations? Yeah, well, I think the one thing that COVID did finally was it really brought to everyone's attention that we need smarter ways of doing things. We need to use technology more. We need to, you know, we need to be able to pivot. So a good example is when we needed, we need a PPE fast and the government's turned around and said, okay, well, we need industry to step up and start manufacturing this stuff. Mm. So then they put forms on their website to go register yourself if you think you might be able to do this. And it just took months because they then had to get that information. They go through the departments, everything else. Whereas there are systems now, ours included, that could automatically redirect, you know, supply chain capability within days. Mm. I think everyone's recognizing that fact that technology is here. I mean, even the point of, of using Teams and Zoom and things like that to talk to people, like how many people now work from home? Mm. And then businesses recognizing how much money they're saving just by people not having to be in an office all the time. Yeah. It did fundamentally change a lot of stuff. Yeah. We'll come back to sort of the technology and particularly what you're doing with your business now. Just going back to those early years in the army, was there a leadership hero in your world? What were those influences of leadership as you were growing up and as you joined the army? Yeah. To tell you the truth, when I was younger, I mean, I, apart from so my parents and, and the way that they, that they were, you know, my parents were entrepreneurs. They always, you know, found the next thing. They always got the job done. They were very hardworking people. At that point, rebelled a lot against authority. I didn't sort of look for that sort of leadership examples in, in a lot of people. But I would have to say, and this sounds this sounds a bit dorky, but when I was 15, John Howard became prime minister. I'm not a huge political fan and I'm certainly not, you know, saying right or left. But to me, he was he was just a leader that I was instantly drawn to like he's a just a genuine mm-hmm. a genuine leader that that people got behind mm. and i actually met him when i was in iraq he came over to see us and i i have a man crush because he i have to say he has the best handshake of any person on the planet you know when you like i shook his hand and immediately i was like yeah you're amazing 
which <laughs> uh, it's a weird thing to say, but it was it's it was true, you know. And I've I've met a number of politicians since then, and they're all you know wet fish handshakes. But you know, John Howard was right. was spot on. Uh, but yeah, yeah. In terms of in the army, there were so many good leadership examples, so many bad ones that you take just as much from. But one of them was one of my early battery commanders, Bernie White. I believe he's now a, a full colonel. We were in Iraq. I was running the target acquisition troop, so my role was to receive all the information of incoming rocket fire and then provide that information out to the infantry about where it's coming from, You know, do the intelligence on what type of systems are being shot at, blah, blah, blah. And the very first time we got rocketed, I believe it was... It was Boxing Day, Boxing Day 2006. So they let us get through Christmas, which was very nice of them. And then on Boxing Day, they decided to hit us with with rockets. And I ran in and, I mean, I don't know, I've been training for this stuff, but it was the first time I was under fire. You know, there was dust shaking from the ceiling. There was explosions going off. And I had to, to run in and send out an alert about where it's coming from. And I was just so jittery, like the adrenaline just went through me. I was there and I was starting to freak out and I was like, you know, misspelling everything. And this was just, it was such a, an important moment. Bernie just walked in and he put his hand on my shoulder and he went, Tim, take a breath. You're trained for this. Calm down and just follow what you need to do. Mm. And just, he sat there with his hand on my shoulder until I sort of took that breath and calmed. And then went, okay, and I got it done. And and then I did my job and I did it well from that point. But it was that ability for him to just see in me that, you know, I needed his help right then and there. And mm. he put me in a position to do what I needed to do at the right time, at the you know, when I needed to do it. So um, I'll always remember that. That stuck with me forever. Yeah. And it's always one of those examples. It's a great lesson, isn't it, to the fact that when you see people that are, you know, perhaps challenged in that moment, need a bit of confidence, need a bit of courage, rather than stepping in, taking over, it's actually just like reinforcing with them that they've actually got what it takes and encouraging them to just you know, take a breath. Yeah, that's right, because he had other stuff to do, you know, but he just took those few seconds to get me doing what I needed to do and then he could go about the rest of his business. And, yeah. you know, that, that was one thing I learned, you know, when you're under fire, people operate in, you know, People respond in different ways. You can have the biggest, toughest guys that are suddenly cowering under the tables and then you can have these other people that just, you know, they're just calm and in the moment and they just do what needs to get done. And, mm. yeah, I was really thankful that he was he was my boss at that point. Yeah. We know it doesn't go well all the time. What was one of those biggest lessons from your time in the service when it didn't go so well? Yeah. So leadership for me, like uh, – when I first sort of got to 16 AD, especially, it didn't come naturally to me. I felt like I was acting. I felt like I was pretending, like I was following the bouncing ball of the playbook they'd given me. I don't think I was doing it genuinely. And in those early days, there was a number of examples of things where I was either embarrassing myself or I wasn't an effective leader or I let down my soldiers simply because... I was trying to tick the boxes. I wasn't doing what needed to be done. Like I, I was doing what I thought people wanted me to do or thought that I should have been doing, but not doing what I knew. Do you know what I mean? Like, a, a, yeah, knew needed to be done. And, and one of those times that really will stay with me forever is um, 
One of my soldiers in my platoon actually committed suicide within my first two years as, as a lieutenant. Wow. He was going through some tough, you know, he was had some problems at, at work, like he, he needed some counselling to get back on track. He was having some problems with other soldiers. He was having a huge amount of problems in his personal life. But mm. I just, I look back on that and go, because I wasn't genuine, because I was, I was just trying to pretend my way through it, well, it's not the right word, but... I felt like I didn't delve into his problems enough and I was just like, I have a soldier, he's got these problems, I'm going to do the counselling, I'm going to tell him to do the right things and then I'm going to check in with him three days later because that's what the book tells me to do rather than going into a human level and going, what, what is it that's going on here, you know, how can I help? Mm. And I think that was like the biggest failure of my career was, I mean, losing a soldier is, is, is hard. Yeah. But the lesson it taught me was, you know, Leadership isn't about following a manual or it's not about following the steps in the leadership book that you read. It's about yeah. doing what you know is right and getting involved and being invested. And I think mm -hmm. it took me years to, to actually master that and to master my own leadership style and what I found important and what I didn't find important and then implement that genuinely. Yeah. And, um, yeah, you're certainly something that causes you to pay attention, doesn't it, those kind of situations. Yeah. And, you know, I guess for anybody listening is, you know, if you uh, feel like you've got somebody that's in that situation, then, then it's about finding that human connection but also finding the resources, using whatever resources you have available to you, like an employee assistance program or, you know, going to Are You OK's website to understand what you might do as the next step to have that important conversation. Yeah. Yeah, and then and then also the leadership after a situation like that, you know, mm. if it does actually happen, to be able to talk through the rest of the team and you know make sure they're okay and that this doesn't sort of have flow-on effects. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's uh, so important that when you have a crisis or critical incident like that, you've actually got that right support around you. I know that the military is generally pretty good at providing those resources, but it's important in corporate world as well, for sure. Yeah, that's right. And especially nowadays, I mean, it's everyone's a, a lot more open about it these days, about when they're struggling. Mm. Yeah. And how are you doing about that? Because I can see it still affects you. Yeah, it does. I certainly don't make this about me. It was, I just, there's always the what ifs. Like to me, it was like, well, what if, what if I was able to, <laughs> to talk to him at the right time or help him with something else at that point? Yeah. Would, would it have changed it? And mm. I did feel a lot of guilt of it, but, um, you know, I only knew him for a very short amount of time, but it was a, just a very hard early lesson. Yeah. Well, Tim, thank you for sharing something that's actually so personal, so vulnerable. No, that's all right. Yeah. So you make the decision to transition from the army at, at the rank of major. Tell us about that. Yeah, it was, I was never going to be you know, a general. I never wanted to be a, a lifetime army. I planned my exit quite well. Like I went to CTMC, which is a capability technology management college. I did my master's degrees in defense capability development and acquisition, as well as, as project management. I started working on defense projects. So I managed, uh, you know, the $2 billion air defense replacement project where we were replacing all the missile systems. So that gave me a really good introduction to industry and how industry worked and a really good network. And that was going to be my way out. Like as soon as I finished that capability development group, I was then just going to jump straight out into industry. And then I came up for subunit command and I got subunit command. I moved back to the unit and then I got diagnosed with a degenerative back disorder. And mm. 
that at the time was putting me on my back every sort of, you know, two months or so. I was then out for a week. I couldn't stand up and they turned around, my boss turned around to me and said, look, you can't be a, you can't be a battery commander if, if you've got this problem. So mm. we'll put you back into OPSO if you like, and you can spend the next four years as OPSO. And the idea of just being in a desk job, you know, and not getting command, it was like, yeah, okay, I'm done. Yeah. So, you know, took my industry parachute and I jumped out and the network I had really saved me. Like I landed in a, a golden lottery job with Pacific Aerospace Consulting. Mm. You know, I worked from home on the Gold Coast. They gave me, you know, pretty much full run of the country and I just traveled when I need to. And mm. my whole job was just to build that business. So the the business was is based in the US and Australia and they sort of specialized in bridging that gap between the US and Australian militaries. And, and as you know, we use a lot of equipment from the US. So mm-hmm. they had such a unique offering. And then, yeah, they made me director of strategy and business development for here in Australia. And I loved my job. I, I really sort of dived into it and, and I found business development quite an easy transition for me, mm. knowing the space and, and coming from a very mm. sort of technical background within Army. So I was able to understand the systems that we were using. Mm. And then, yeah, that's when I saw, I guess, the problems in industry and, you know, things didn't sit right. And, and so then I sort of came up with my own business mm. to fix those problems. And that's sort of yeah. where my company started. Yeah, I want to come back to Ben John, but what are some of the skills you think you need to have or need to develop to be a good business development manager? Because it's something that a lot of people end up in, but not always with the skill set. You know, what are the, what are the two or three things that you have? Actually, these were the things that helped me. Yeah, I think one thing that helps is the ability to be a bit of a chameleon. So no matter who you're speaking to, be able to to be able to be who you need to be in that conversation. So. You can be talking to, you know, a minister and then you can be talking to the CEO of a prime and then you can be talking to a project manager and then, you know, like mm. the ability to switch gears and be able to have, you know, meaningful conversations with all those different levels I think is important. But I think the army really prepares you for that. You know, one day you're talking to a general and the next day you're talking to your soldiers and I think that's why officers very easily transition into that. Mm. I think you need the ability to spot opportunity, like to be able to to quickly assess the situation and how it's evolving and how the conversation's evolving and go, actually, spot, I spot an opportunity there. Now, how can I bring that into the conversation and how can I then sell that across? Mm. I think officers are very good natural salespeople because we're always selling the mission. We're always selling the vision of where we're going to go. You know, like we're convincing our soldiers that that hill is the is the hill that we need and we're going to, go, you know, we're going to go take it. Well, well we could characterise as any, any good leader is able to do that, yeah? Yeah, yeah, okay. That, that would be a better way of saying it. So, yeah. Yeah. And also the ability to public speak. I think, to me, public speaking is a superpower. The ability to be able to stand up in front of a room or, or even a group of people that you can find intimidating and be able to speak clearly, confidently, getting your point across without going over the top, I think is a really huge skill. And one that I treasure from my time in Army because that's where it came from, the ability to stand up in front of my platoon on the first day when I'm a young 20, you know, 23-year-old and I've got sergeants that are in their late 40s and I'm there going, hey, you know, I'm Lieutenant Tim Wormsley <laughs> and, I, you know, you should listen to me. That was sort of trial by fire. And then over the years, you learn to be able to speak 
at, in any situation and be able to, you know, categorize your thoughts and, and say them clearly. And I think no one should un- underestimate public speaking. Yeah. It's about, you know, I speak occasionally, facilitate a lot, but it's actually it's making sure that communications is actually about the audience, not about yourself. Right. And and connecting with them. And I can remember challenges as a junior officer having that kind of conversation with a whole bunch of senior sailors and sailors in the Navy and, and realising that my message was not getting across very well yeah, at all. Yeah. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, I made that fundamental flaw of sort of talking about my vision but not understanding what they needed. Exactly. And that's and I guess that's a key part of business development too, you know, and understanding who they are, what their point of view is, and then mm. how you can help them. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes it's more about the questions and having all the answers. Yeah, and, and actually that's sort of, I've got a bit of a mantra that I developed during that time is that everything that I do now is a, is a win-win. And if, if it's not a win for them mm-hmm. and then a win for us as well, then mm-hmm. it's either not the right fit, we need to look at a new way of trying to achieve it and innovate mm-hmm. and get around it. And that's yeah. now part of our culture as a company and mm-hmm. every decision we make going forward is, is has the win-win checkbox. Does it give everyone a win? Yep, let's do it. Yeah. Well, you've already kind of opened the door in terms of Bench On, the business that you run. Tell us about the genesis of that and, and what was that gap? What's the problem you're, you're now solving and the, and the promise, I guess? Yeah. And what process do you have around that as well? Yeah, no, thanks. So it started off very different to what it is now. I started it to solve employee underutilization. So in defense industry, particularly, it's very, you know, peaks and troughs, you know, one minute you've got too much work on, not enough staff, the next minute you've got no work on and too much staff. And because because defense is very contract based. And as we only have one customer being the Department of Defense, they can make their mind up and go, yeah, okay, we're not doing that anymore. And a company will have invested their people and their time into that contract. And then all of a sudden, the contract stops. And what are they going to do? They can't keep paying the salaries of their people because they've got no work to put them on. So they let them go. So you lose, you know, valuable employees and then you win another contract and then you got to recruit people back in. Like it just didn't, it didn't seem like it was a logical way of doing business. And I remember I spoke to my boss at the time and he just said, look, mate, that's just the way business is. It's peaks and troughs and we try to survive long enough to get through the troughs. Mm. Sometimes we work and sometimes it doesn't work. And that's just the way it is. And as you would know, in the military, we have the red flag system you know when a soldier says oh that's just the way it's always been or you know that's just the way we've always done it it was as an officer you go okay well i'm gonna to have to look into this to make sure it is actually the right you know the right thing to do and the right process to follow hmm. so when he said that i sort of went well well what if there's a different way like what if it's just people stuck in their own in their own way and then i was i was sitting inside one of the large defense primes offices and one of their guys slams the phone down and, and he said, you know, the bloody government, I told them six weeks ago they were going to need three systems engineers and they said, no, no, we won't. And then he goes, funnily enough, they just rang me and said, oh, my God, we've got a huge problem. We need three systems engineers by tomorrow. And he went, I don't just have, I don't just have a bench of engineers just sitting around waiting for that phone call. And that's when I realized, well, there are companies out there with, with engineers sitting on the bench that they're trying to find work for. You just, you're not aware they are or where they're residing. Mm. And so Benchon was originally designed as a platform to match up that supply and demand for specialist talent between businesses so that when a business had an urgent need for people, they could put it into the system and an AI algorithm would then match them to the companies that had those people available that had the skill sets and everything else. 
Now, our idea was that if we solve employee underutilization, we, you know, increase revenue for small business, which allows them to hire more people, which, you know, gives those people more stable jobs, which means we reverse the casualization of the workforce. And, and, you know, there were these big economic benefits that I was going for. And what I found in the first few years was that everyone thought it was a great idea and a whole bunch of small businesses signed up, but they all had the excess people. They didn't have the demand. Like I couldn't build that other side. Mm. All of the big companies were like, oh, look, it's a great idea. We're so happy you're doing it, but oh, it's just not for us. We've got these processes in place and we can't use something like that. So I had to get the enterprises on board. So we you know, worked with you know, Westpac and a few other big companies and I sort of delved into how they do business and and they sort of said, well, this is how we operate. And I found out what their problems were. And then I said, okay, well, what if I can build you industry portals that will solve all these issues for you? And so, yes, yeah, so I spent the next couple of years building these enterprise portals, which now incorporate tendering and supply chain. And mm. it took COVID. And that's what I was saying before. It took COVID to really smash home to these big companies that technology is, is something that we should be using. Mm. And it just took a, you know, a blind faith that this was going to work and, and the ability for Katie and I to just to keep going with this business to finally get through. And, and then all of a sudden, it just the banks broke and all the big companies started coming on board and governments have now started coming on board. And we finally sort of, mm. it took six years, but we finally broke through and, you know, we, we, we've now created something that, that wasn't there before. And that story is all about commitment and skin in the game because you actually sold your house to do it to get the company started yeah yeah well, we decided that very early on we said look if actually to, to his credit it was my boss at pacific aerospace i was doing bench on as a bit of a side hustle while i still worked for them mm. and it was starting to grow a bit bigger and i said to him i said look i'm gonna have to you know either do part-time or something like what do you think and and he said well no it's either you're either doing pack or you're doing bench on and he said, I'll ask you this. If you don't go all in on bench on and it doesn't work because of that, will you ever forgive yourself? Mm. And I went, well, no. Like I, in my heart of hearts, I knew this was the idea. This was that idea of my life, that really important idea that I had to throw everything behind. Mm. And, I mean, he was actually shocked that I said, no, okay, it's bench on. Thanks. Here's my resignation. He was like, what do you mean? What do you resign for? <laughs> So, but I really needed to throw all in. So then I said to Katie, I was like, well, let's do it. Let's sell the house. She quit her job and we ended up, mm. it was everything or nothing. Yeah. Well, you clearly had all of the boxes ticked, I guess, when it came to the problem, the promise and finding up a process. And, and as you've said and explained, it's a couple of iterations sometimes to find the sweet spot that actually, you know, sees the thing take off. Yeah. It was a very hard period. Like I... I had probably two breakdowns in the first, you know, three or four years. Mm. We almost went bankrupt probably four times. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was a really tough journey to get there, but it was that faith that one, it was the right idea and we knew that it was, it was going to pay off mm. and that we knew it was needed. Mm. And I guess that comes back to the leadership side of going, well, but we, we had to have faith that, that this innovation was the right thing and then, too, just the perseverance and commitment to, mm. to stick with it until, until it worked. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot about, as you said, commitment and, and kind of probably understanding what risks you're personally taking here. 
but clearly had a clear vision about where it needed to go. So what does Benchon look like today in terms of who you're working and how it's working? Yeah, so our vision is that we can solve most of industry's problems by digitally connecting businesses together. Mm. And so our vision is to build this fully digitally connected industry ecosystem that maps out the capacity and capability of all businesses and then intelligently matches that that capacity and demand together. Mm. And that that is for products, manufacturing, services, people. And the way we do that is we build branded portals for governments and, and large enterprises so they can manage their own curated supply chains and they can release their own expressions of interest and tenders and contract opportunities Mm -hmm. and businesses of all shapes and sizes can sign up they can say what they're doing Mm -hmm. and i guess the difference is that our system is has a smart matching system so you don't get a whole huge list of things that you've got to search through and try and find the one that's suitable for you you'll just get notified when there's a role or an opportunity or a tender that is designed for your business. So you can really just get about running your business and know that you'll just get those opportunities will be brought to you. Yeah. And, you know, we now support over 3000 companies. We've just signed on with the the Department of Transport and Main Roads to provide a portal to run their rail sector. Mm -hmm. We're working with the Gold Coast City Council to help businesses recover from COVID. And the more that we use the system and the more that we employ it, the, the more benefits we see in the economy mm. for small businesses as well as the big business. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess sort of some of those sort of contractors and consultants sort of were missing out on work are also kind of looked after in all that process as well. Yeah, hundred percent. And we, we designed those processes mm. to protect them as well as to bring them more work. Mm. And I guess the way that we built bench on is we just built it from that first principles this first principles mindset of, you know, common sense logic, like we question everything. If they go, oh, that's just the way business does this, it's like, well, why does it need to be that way? Yeah. And to tell you the truth, the military was the MAP, the military appreciation process was the way that I designed Bench on and how it operates. You know, we, yeah. the way they taught me to plan is, is how I did it. So it, I just changed, you know, my environmental analysis. I changed that to market analysis. I changed, mm. you know, enemy analysis to competitor analysis. I still did the three, you know, the three options, courses of action. I wargamed them all out with investors and mentors and everything else. And mm. yeah, that's how it was sort of born. There's a good business methodology in all of that. And one we should probably take to the market. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it, it really was quite simple. I, I got out my performer that I had in my webbing and I, I literally opened that up and just followed the steps. Yeah. 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 I'd be concerned if you put your cameras on to do it, but anyway, we won't go there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, no. Well, you went out to a, a, like a patch of grass and uh, or sand and, and actually... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, with my big clipboard. Like you would in the field. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. With my big clipboard on a map. Yeah, no, I didn't do that. But it did involve a whiteboard, I'll tell you that. Nothing gets done these days without a whiteboard. I know, absolutely. <laughs> you know, you founded Benchon with uh, Katie and yourself and uh, you know, they've got staff. I mean, what's important to you in the culture of Benchon as it grows? Uh, yeah, so all of our staff operate remotely. So, you know, my tech team are spread from Cairns to Sydney. We've never had a an office space where we all come together. So that presents its own challenges in terms of culture and leadership and how do I do that? Not to mention the fact that we're a very technology-heavy business and I don't know anything about 
coding or, you know, developing tech platforms. So how do I manage a, a team that they know I know nothing about what they do? I have to have full trust mm. in their ability to sort of create what I've envisaged. envisaged. <laughs> That's not the right word. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And then, you know, so the way that I, the way that we do that is that we, we give them a lot more freedom. We certainly don't micromanage them. But what's important to us is that every employee in our business has stake in the game. So they all have shares. Mm-hmm. We gift them employee options regularly just to reinvest into them. Mm-hmm. We offer them, you know, unlimited training. They just, they choose what they want to be trained in and how they want their careers to go. And then they come to us and, oh, can we do this master's degree or can we do this short course or whatever? And it's, you know, go for it. Mm. You know, we, we just implemented a nine-day fortnight because they, they do work such long hours and hard work that, you know, we want to try and give back. So we use things like that to create a to create buy-in. Mm. And then that's I guess that's our biggest part of the culture, and Katie actually set this up, which was stakeholder buy-in is key to any sort of success. Mm. You know, stakeholder buy-in for even when we, we launch Benchon. If I didn't have Katie's buy-in, or if I didn't have, you know, investors buy-in, then that wasn't going to go anywhere. Now, we need our employees buy-in for where we're going mm. and the journey that we're on, and as well as our investors, as well as the market. You know, it's all about how do we ensure that everyone is moving in the same direction and they all believe in where we're going, Yeah, especially when we're not in the same room. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. So that, that's... It, when you've got a startup, it could be very easy to forget the employees or the team. Because, uh, you know, you're so focused on investors and the potential clients, et cetera. But, you know, getting that buy-in from across the board sounds like a great approach. Yeah. Well, and then, you know, they feel like they're part owners and it's, it's, it's just as much theirs. They take a lot of pride in, in what they're building and mm. it means that I can have that trust. I know that they're, they're working with us, not against us. Yeah. Yeah. What advice would you give to leaders today, you know, that are looking to step up or lean into leading people at whatever level it might be? Well, first off, it's not all about you. It's about the team. It's about the vision and and where you're going. I think you need to take time to every now and then stop and reflect on yourself as as a leader Mm -hmm. because you can get very caught up in what you're doing, which means you put blinkers on. Mm -hmm. And I think a leader's role is to step back, have that higher view, you know, keep the ship going in the right direction. And being able to stop every now and then, reflect on who you are, what you are as a leader, and then recorrect yourself where you need to, I think mm. I think that's important. So reflection is a big one. Mm. And two, leadership is not a one-size-fits-all. Mm. You need to find your own leadership style and make it genuine because people will see through when, when you're trying to put some sort of a thing you read in a book into practice. It's got to come naturally. Mm. And sometimes that means, you know, going against some of the wisdom that you might hear out there Mm. but whatever works for you that's the way you've got to run it yeah i mean leadership is at the end of the day a lived experience and and as you've said you know reflecting on sort of how you turn up we did something go well actually having a feedback mechanism for that really important yeah yeah 100 percent. and that yeah that took me a long time to learn as i tried other people's way of leading Mm -hmm. because you know we see so many good leadership examples Mm. Oh, that guy came in and he had such gravitas and he was so gruff and, you know, to the point. And 
And then I tried that, but it just wasn't me. Like it wasn't, yeah. so it didn't work and it failed miserably. And then I was like, okay, well now I'm a failed leader. And then I tried somebody else's style and, you know, until I actually just went, well, bugger all that. Like I know the key aspects of what I have to do and now I'm just going to do it in my own personality. I think it came together. Yeah. Well, that's a great way to sort of kind of finish our chat, Tim. It's been wonderful to have you on the podcast. I um, want to finish up with the rapid fire questions. As I say to many of the guests, it's the rapid fire questions, but they may not necessarily be <laughs> rapid fire answers. <laughs> yeah. So the first question, if you can fill in the blank, leadership is blank. Leadership is essential to achieving any great endeavor. How about that? Awesome. Yeah. Sounds good. What's your go-to leadership book or a book that's helped you along the way? Do you know what? My favorite thing, and, and I I watch the video over, you know, view of this book, but Start With Why by Simon Sinek. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, that was like mind-changing, you know. It was huge. And, yeah, his TED Talk, we watch that as a company every year just to recorrect ourselves. But that book mm. is just brilliant. And then... I have another book that I read, you know, once every sort of year or so, which is, it's a fiction book, Ender's Game. Oh, right. And it's, Never heard of that. it's a sci-fi book, but it's very much around strategy and leadership. And it's an interesting, fun story, but the whole way through it is just peppered with leadership mm. examples and lessons and everything else. And I do love reading that every now and then just to remind myself. Yeah. I find it fascinating where leadership can turn up. Somebody else shared with me Dune being a uh, oh yeah, and sci-fi, other sci-fi stuff being a good place for leadership. Yeah, mm. well, because you can, you know, everyone's going. Oh, we got to read these, you know, non-fiction business books all the time, and mm. it's like, well, you know what? Sometimes I just want to switch off. I still want to get the benefit, but you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and that creative fiction space might be a better place to actually have a moment of reflection if you're sort of focused on the story rather than every other point being the same thing. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Next question, I wish I'd known blank earlier in my career. I wish I'd known about just, you know, being yourself a bit more and trusting mm-hmm. in yourself. I spent too many years in my 20s believing that everyone else knew more than me and I just needed to follow what people were telling me and mm. it took me a long time to realise, well, actually, I've got a lot of training, you know, I've got a lot of, you know, knowledge and skills. If I just employ them the way I want to employ them, then I'll actually achieve a better result. Yeah. And I, I think that's what I wanted to know early in my career is just trust yourself and go with your gut. Mm. Very good. Next question, you get a call from a team member, crisis just erupted in your business, and what are your first words to that person? Much like Bernie, I would say. Just, you know, the hand on the shoulder and say, look, late, take a breath. Mm. Mm-hmm. Take a second and let's just work through this step by step. Yeah. Because that's the only way that you work the fastest way through a crisis is, is slow and steady. Mm. Yeah. Excellent. And the last question, the go-to quote on leadership that has the most influence on your leadership style. Actually, there's one by Steve Jobs. He said, and this is used a lot in business, it's innovation distinguishes leaders from followers. I think that was the quote. Mm. Leadership distinguishes leaders from followers. And the reason I like that is, one, I'm, I'm very innovation focused and that's how I think and that's what I think distinguishes me as a leader is the ability to innovate, to, to drive the vision, to see the opportunities. But also, you know, uh, it links in with another quote and I can't remember who said this, but 
leaders find solutions and followers discuss problems. Right. And I think that sort of marries up that a leader will, they'll find a problem, but they'll innovate, they'll find a solution around it and they'll keep everyone moving forward. Yes. And that's that's sort of how I try to, to run things now. Yeah. So I guess that's about right. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you're doing that. It's uh, great to see your success with Ben John and, you know, just a great example of commitment. And if you first don't succeed, try again. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Well, Tim, thanks so much for giving up your time today to be on the show. We look forward to putting some comments there in the show notes to capture the things you're doing with Ben John. But, yeah, wonderful to have you on the show and go well and all success to you. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Frontline to Boardroom. So grateful that you could be with us. For more on how you can step up to leadership every day, be sure to visit us at martinbrooker.com where you can subscribe to the show to be notified every time an episode drops. And if you found value in this episode, we'd love it if you'd share it with a friend. Looking forward to being here with you next week. And remember, sometimes you need to drive it like you stole it.